Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, well, welcome to Salt Company, you guys. Hey, my name is Jared. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, um, I'd love to get a chance to meet you. Um, hey, welcome back from Thanksgiving break. <laughs> How many of you guys had a great Thanksgiving break this past week? Good? How, make some noise for the people who stayed in Madison for Thanksgiving break. Who stayed here in Madison? Who left Madison this past week? Okay. Is, is coming back to Madison like good, bittersweet? Like, talk to me. Anybody eat anything good over Thanksgiving break? Yeah? What did you guys eat? Shout some stuff out. What did you guys have? Mashed potatoes. Mac and cheese. Hey, mac and cheese. Turkey. Brisket. Okay, nice. Anybody, anybody else? <laughs> okay. Yo, hey, I think, yo, in a lot of different circles, mac and cheese is like a side, like a main dish. But like where I come from, mac and cheese is like the main dish, right? Like main dish is like, like macaroni and cheese is what makes Thanksgiving, right? Like anybody else in that side of the boat? Um, yo, one, one of my favorite things I eat for Thanksgiving is, this has nothing to do with anything, by the way, okay? Um, is peach cobbler. Is, is Atticus in the building somewhere? Atticus? Atticus, hey, I, I promised you peach cobbler. But I'm going to go on, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're going to have to wait till like Christmas or something like that, all right? Yo, but hey, I, I want to hop into the message tonight. I want to continue in the series that we've been in. We've been in this series called Dwell. And this is idea of experiencing life with God wherever we are, right? Kind of like experiencing God in the real stuff of life. And tonight, as uh, Tristan just read, we're, we're going to be kind of talking about this, this temptation of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, this is what's going to be happening here. But before I get there, I kind of want to catch us up in the text, right, to kind of make some of the things that we're going to be hearing about tonight make sense. But as Matthew was writing this gospel, this is the first gospel that we run into in the New Testament. At the beginning of the gospels, what the writers are trying to do is like they're trying to introduce us to Jesus. And the way that Matthew does this is he does this in a real cool way where he kind of shows us this progression of linear presentations of this person, Jesus. And what Matthew's trying to show us is that this dude that's coming onto the scene, right, this first book after the Old Testament has been complete, is that this dude that's coming onto the scene, he is the one that's going to change the world. Like he is literally hope in human form. And Matthew presents him to us in a couple of different presentations. And the first one is this. He presents him to us by a presentation of ancestry. Right, beginning in chapter 1, he comes through and he tells us about this guy named Abraham from the Old Testament way back in Genesis. Right, and He comes down this lineage and he gets to this person, Jesus, through his father and mother, Joseph and Mary. And as we get into chapter 2, we get into this presentation of Advent. Right, right there on your guys' seats, you guys just went through these. Rudy talked about these. Those are Advent books. Right? Advent is a season that we come into as we come into the Christmas season. And Advent is just this idea of waiting for this person of Jesus to be born. It's kind of the expectation that we have for Jesus to be born. Mary and Joseph becoming supernaturally pregnant. And the signs of the baby being the Messiah through different affirmations. Like this is what it means to be an Advent, waiting for Jesus to be born. The third presentation is this, presentation by ambassador. He is preceded by his cousin, John the Baptist, in chapter 3. And it's this same cousin, John the Baptist, in the presentation of approval, the last presentation, who baptizes him. 
And as we get to where we are now in our text in chapter 4, the second act to this approval of Jesus is his temptation. And so we see that Jesus, he gets led into the spirit or led into the wilderness by the spirit and he's tempted by Satan. But before we get into the text, here's what I want us to listen through this, this, this evening. Because we, we begin to wrestle with what it means to dwell with God in the midst of temptation. We have to understand something about temptation first. And here's a principle for us. The fire and trials of temptations can do one of two things to us. They can either consume us or they can refine us. You see, there's many examples in scripture of people who have faced temptation, they faced trials and have failed and experienced the consequence of what it looks like to be in a consuming fire. Right? Abraham experienced this when he lied about his wife as he goes into Egypt. Moses, also in Egypt, as he gives himself into rage and violence. King David, as he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Judas, betraying Jesus, all gave in to temptation. They know what this feels like. And maybe you're sitting in this room, maybe you felt something like that too. But I know I felt a sense of giving in to temptation in my life. Right? Maybe not to that extent, <laughs> But here's what's true. You know what it's like to be tempted into compromise. You know what it's like to be tempted by a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You know what it's like to be tempted to cheat. You know what it's like to be tempted to lie. You know what it's like to be tempted. And if we're honest, so many of us lose to temptation more than we succeed. And if you're brave enough to admit that in this room tonight, I just want to let you know that you're in good company. See, tonight we're going to be talking about temptation. This can be a touchy subject for, for many, but I'm not talking about temptation tonight to shame you. What I want to do is talk about temptation to help you. At the point of tonight's message isn't that we leave from this room and we have this perfect record against temptation because we won't do that no matter how hard we try. There's only one person who was perfect and one person who was without sin, and that person is Jesus. But as we look at the scripture, the scripture does give us orders to resist temptation and stand firm when we face trials. And this story in Matthew is Jesus modeling this for us. He teaches us something. He teaches us how to experience the fire of temptation and not be consumed by it, but be refined by it. So here's what I want to do tonight in the text. I want to walk through this chapter in Matthew 4 about the temptation of Jesus, kind of talk us through this text. And then I want to ask a couple questions. How did he fight temptation when he was approached by Satan? Second question, how do we fight temptation, a lot of what Jesus has done? And why do we need to fight temptation? You guys with me? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, here's what it says. And then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. And when the devil comes to him, the first temptation he tries to tempt him with is really just this idea of self-sufficiency. 
You see, Jesus was tempted to depend on his own provision for food. And you can imagine after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, right, Jesus would have been hungry. Like how many of y'all have tried fasting before? Right, what's that, like maybe one day, three days, anybody fast for 40 days before? No. Right, Jesus would have been hungry. So what Satan does is he comes to him and, and he tries to tempt him. He says, hey, you're Jesus. You can do whatever you want. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? See, I want to point something out to us about what Satan tries to do in moments where he's tempting us. You see, Satan isn't trying to tempt Jesus with some outlandish thing. Right, you might be looking at this idea of turning rocks into bread and you're like, well, that's pretty outlandish, right? Yeah, for us, maybe, but for Jesus... <laughs> Like, this is small potatoes. This, this is nothing to Jesus. See, he's not trying to come to Jesus and tempt him with the outlandish thing. He comes to him and tempt him with this reasonable thing. And here's what's true. The same thing is true when we are being tempted as well. Like, rarely does Satan come to us and be like, hey, let's, we should go rob a bank or something like that. Like, what he wants to do is have you give in to a simple desire that pushes you past the boundary that you know you shouldn't cross. Like when you're hanging out with that guy or girl that you like. See, maybe your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You see, Satan wants you to think it's okay if you just stay a little bit longer. Like it's okay if you just scoot a little bit closer. It's okay if it gets past midnight. It's okay if clothes start to come off, right? Oops. So the next thing you know, you start to compromise. Listen, y'all, like I've, I've been around college ministry for a while now, and I've been around a lot of college guys. And a lot of times when I get in conversations with guys and we're talking about temptation, a lot of times they come to me and they say, hey, man, like me and my girlfriend, we're just having trouble staying pure. We keep giving in to sexual temptation. And the first question I often have is like, oh, well, like when does this usually happen? It's like, oh, well, when we're at our dorm, at our apartment. I'm like, oh, are your roommates there? No. So you guys are alone? Yes. You guys sitting on the couch? Yes. Is it late? Yes. Are the blankets out? Yes. Are you guys watching a movie? Yes. And I'm just like, well, well that's not like really temptation. That's just not very smart. <laughs> like one thing will lead to another. And I can tell you know where I'm, I'm going right now, but I also want to make this caveat real quick, okay? Like, like sex, the idea of sex, like sex isn't bad. Sex is actually a very good thing. Like I don't know where you come from, what kind of Christian persuasion you come from, but, but that's not what we think here. Sex is not a bad thing. Sex is actually a very good thing. It was created by God, and God created it for you to know, for you to love, and for you to enjoy, but he created it to be experienced in a particular way is in the confines of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. See, here's what's true about humans. Like we have a desire, a natural appetite to eat, right? So God has created food. But you also have this desire, a natural appetite for pleasure. And guess what God made for that? God made sex. And his desire is for you to enjoy it, not however you see fit, but how he created it. Like when we see this temptation of Jesus, we have to ask the question, could he have turned the rocks into food? 
Yeah, he could have done that, right? Like he will actually do many other miraculous things than that. He will actually turn water into wine, also concerning food. He will multiply, multiply fish and loaves for the multitude. Like he will do these things. But when he's doing them, what does he often say he's doing? He says he's doing his father's business. His father's business. So I have to ask the question too, like, could you give into the appetite of pleasure? Yes. And if you have a lifelong spouse, you can enjoy the greatest kind and greatest amount of sex that you want. But outside of God's design, we have to know that all we're doing is giving into temptation and giving in to sin. See, sin is often not a matter of just what you do, but by whose authority or under whose rule that you do it. See, Jesus was so in tune with his father that he could discern where this tempting request was coming from. And it wasn't this heavenly request, but rather it was a hellish request, a request for him to lean on his own strength and his own plan instead of the strength and plan of the father. But Jesus knew that man does not live on bread alone or only to appeal to our earthly appetites, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan tempts Jesus with self-sufficiency. He tempts us with self-sufficiency. But let's look, what else? Look at verse 5. It says this. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, first Jesus was tempted with self-sufficiency, and now he's tempted with self-glory. Right, this temptation here was a temptation for Jesus to draw a kind of premature attention to himself. <laughs> like some of us in here love going to concerts. Any Taylor Swift fans in the building? Right, imagine being at a Taylor Swift concert. And Taylor Swift is coming out. Imagine she's like repelling from the top of the building down onto the concert stage, right? Like, I know a lot of you are Swifties in here and y'all would go crazy. I'm not a Swifty, okay? But, but y'all would go crazy about that. I, I know, that's fine. You see, what, what Satan is tempting Jesus with, it's kind of something like that, right? He's being tempted by this kind of premature fame where he could do something that could instantly go viral in all eyes from everywhere could be on him. And what Jesus says is no. And I think this is interesting, right? Because it's not that he didn't come to have eyes on him. It's not that he didn't come to be the end of everything because he actually did. He's literally the savior of the world. Like Jesus holds the authority that could give you either eternal life in paradise or eternal life in hell. Like the, the keys to the universe are his. Like we're even still reading an ancient book that's about him. Did y'all know that the Bible is the most purchased book ever? Right, the Guinness Book of World Records says that the Bible has sold over 5 billion copies. Y'all, Jesus is top of the charts and he's going to stay there. He's not anti-fame. He wants everyone to worship him. But get this, his glory and fame doesn't come by the success of popularity, but by the humiliation of the cross. 
Like Jesus would go to the cross and Jesus would die a shameful death and he would be buried in the depths of the grave. But those of us who know he will be raised three days later to reach the highest of heights where eyes and hearts will be in search of him forever. See, the problem wasn't that Satan was trying to make him famous. The problem was that he wasn't trying to make him famous enough. And look at verse 8 as he tries to offer him even more. It says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and in the, in, in their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Here, Satan comes to Jesus and he offers him a sense of instant gratification, which is ironic because Satan tried to tempt Jesus with what already had belonged to him. Right, but there is a truth in here, right? There's a truth to the element that the ruling spirit of today's age is the spirit of the evil one. But we also have to know this, like make no mistake, God is still in control. Like there is no square inch of the universe that Jesus doesn't lay claim on. He looks at everything that has ever been created from here to anywhere, and he says, hey, that's mine. Y'all, Satan is on a leash, and his leash is short, and all he can do is tempt and deceive. So again, he tries to deceive Jesus into thinking that he doesn't have to go through with the plans of the Father. He tempts him saying, hey, you don't have to go through being betrayed. Hey, you don't have to go through losing all your friends. You don't have to go through public humiliation. You don't have to go through being beat or spat on or whipped. You don't even have to go to being nailed on the cross. You don't have to die, Jesus. He says, listen, I have a better plan. I know that all of this will be yours eventually, but hey, you can have it now so long as you bow down to me. But Jesus says, hey, be gone. I only worship and serve God. And I love what verse 11 says. It says, and the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. See, Jesus was led into the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan. He resisted temptation and Satan left him. But I love this detail because it holds a lot of hope in it, right? It's kind of this proof and encouragement that our resistance to temptation is not in vain. It is the proof that the pressure we might feel to give in now will not always be. And for those of us who need that truth right now in this room, that is good news. As the narrative unfolds, we see that Jesus wasn't in the wilderness unprepared for the attack. See, Jesus goes into the wilderness. The devil comes up onto him and the devil tries to tempt him. And we have to ask the question, you know, how did Jesus resist this temptation? He goes into the wilderness, but Jesus doesn't go unprepared. I love this. Right? Satan came to tempt him, and in your language, he tries to test Jesus, but Jesus passes the vibe check. <laughs> but how? There's three things I want to show us. The first thing is this. Jesus knew his identity. You see, in a couple verses in this passage, verses 3 and verses 6, Satan comes to Jesus and he says, hey, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. Satan tries to come at his identity. And Jesus was not confused about who he was. He didn't come to Satan and he says, well, I think I'm the son of God. 
he was not shaken by Satan trying to tempt him and ask him if he was the son of God. No, he knew deep down who he was. He was approved before Satan even came to him. He knew exactly who he was. He was the chosen son of God. He was the one who didn't have to put on human flesh, but he put on human flesh for the sake of coming for a rescue mission for all of humanity. He knew exactly who he was. Jesus, the son of God. Jesus, the son of man. The second thing is this. He knew his enemy. See, Jesus knew exactly who he was fighting against. We don't know what way that Satan came to Jesus in this moment. But if you know the scripture, like Jesus or Satan can appear in a couple different ways. We know that he can appear, at, can appear as a snake from the garden story in the book of Genesis. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he appears as an angel of light. And even in the narrative of 1 Samuel, back with the nation of Israel, the first king of Israel, King Saul, it says that he was anointed with the spirit of God, but because he was a disobedient king, the spirit of God left him, but an evil spirit was put on him. Maybe that was kind of what the Satan came to Jesus like. Now, we don't know how the enemy came to him, but we know that Jesus rightly identified him. See, he wasn't confused about who was against him. See, when we experience trials and temptations, we often want to point fingers at anything that we possibly can. Like Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't blame Satan. No. He knows who he is. He knows he's the tempter. But us, like we'll point our finger at anything we possibly can. The people in our lives. We'll say, hey, someone else made me do it. Or the feelings that we feel like, well, I was alone. I felt alone. No one was there. Or the circumstances. We get defensive. We say, hey, well, what else was I supposed to do? We continually throw our fist in the air, trying to connect on who we think the enemy is, not knowing we're aiming at the wrong thing. But Jesus shows us that our enemies are not the people in our lives, they're not the feelings that we feel, they're not our own circumstances. Our enemy is only one, and he is the deceiver. See, he knew who he was, he knew who his enemy was, and thirdly, he knew the word. When Satan comes to tempt Jesus, this is the most important thing for us to know. Jesus combats the temptation with the word of God. Satan comes to Jesus and said, hey, turn these rocks into bread. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 8.3, hey, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan says, throw yourself off from a high place. And Jesus responds, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan says, bow down and worship me. Jesus, Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. See, I don't know if you know this, but one of Doxa's core values as a church is to be a Bible-saturated church. Which means we have this plumb line, if you prick us, we bleed Bible. See, this isn't a value just because we want to be Bible quiz champions or because like, we just like, like, really want to thump people with the Bible. No, but it's a value because it's a proven model by Jesus. Like He knew the word and he used it to fight off the enemy. And so if this is how Jesus resisted temptation, and we have to ask the question, then how do we resist temptation? If Jesus resisted temptation like this, then how do we do it? I'm about to blow your mind, okay? We do it the exact same way. The first thing we have to do is know our identity. 
this might be the most important thing that Satan will try to confuse you with. Like when Satan comes to you to tempt you, the very first thing that he's going to do is he's going to come at your identity. He's going to say, hey, are you really loved? Are you really chosen? Are you really saved? Are you really valued? Are you really a child of God? And Salt Company, if that's the case, then we know that we have to know our identity. We can't listen when the enemy comes to tempt us and say, hey, you're not loved. No, you say, I am loved. I am saved. I am chosen. I am a child of God. Y'all, we have to know our name. We have to know who we are and whose we are. Y'all, you don't have to look for the affirmation and identity and how smart you are, or the clothes that you wear, how many likes you get on Instagram, or if you're turning heads when you're walking down Straight Street, right? Like, hey, we get it. You have a lot of nice things. You're pretty or handsome or whatever, right? But, but we need to know that these things will fail us as our ultimate identity. See, if you are in Christ, you can have your identity in something that is way more firm than that, something that can't be shaken by losing whatever you're holding on to. It can't be shaken by whoever walks in or out of your life. It can't be shaken by who doesn't like your post. You can have your identity in something that will actually last, something that will hold up to the fire of temptation. See, fighting temptation starts with knowing who we are. Secondly, you have to know who your enemy is. You have to know who you are doing battle with. I want to tag Uh, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6 here. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's telling them, reminding them, hey, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Like your battle, Salt Company, is not against flesh and blood. Right, your enemies aren't the people that you hang around that are bad influences on you. They're not the people who have wrongly guided you in life. And even some of us in this room probably come in here thinking that, that your enemy is, is, is you. Like people really think that we ourselves are our worst enemies. But neither of these things are true. And actually believing any of these things is a falsehood and they will only lead to heartache, headache, and despair. You have to know who your true enemy is. Your battle is not with flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. I was in teachers meeting this week and uh, I had to be reminded, right? So I'm I'm saying a lot of Satan stuff, Satan tempts us. But I had to be reminded that that, that sometimes, hey, it's not Satan that's tempting you. Sometimes it's the things of the world that are tempting you. Sometimes it's just our flesh, right? The unholy trinity, the world, the devil in our flesh. Like, and sometimes there's fallen systems, fallen systems in our life that are created by fallen people that contribute to the evil and temptation. But I don't want to bypass this. I want to acknowledge this. But here's what's true. No matter how you slice it, the enemy's weapons are the same. Lies, deception, accusation, and condemnation. But Paul says there's an antidote to this. He says in Ephesians 6, verse 13, for this reason, take up the full armor of God 
so that you may be able to resist on the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. He says, so stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist and righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. And in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. Now, if you read through that list, you can find all the armor of God in there. But there's only one offensive weapon that shows up here, which leads us to our next how. How we fight temptation is this, we have to know the word. The offensive weapon that we have is the sword of the spirit, Paul says, which is the word of God. Do you memorize scripture? Do you have verses in your mind that if you were tempted in this moment, you can pull up and speak the word of God and have the temptation subside? Do you have scripture memorized? Listen, here's the main point for tonight. Knowing the word of God is the key to fighting temptation. But here's what's true. The the reality of knowing the word, memorizing the word, like this doesn't just come at crunch time when you need it. No, like wielding the sword that is the word of God doesn't come without practice. This is something that we have to actually do. You have to engage with it. You have to make time for it, practice it, memorize it. And with practice comes repetition. With repetition comes memory. And with memory comes accuracy. We need to know the word of God so we can properly wield the word of God against the temptation in our lives. See, Jesus knew who he was. He knew who his enemy was. And he knew the word to fight the fire of temptation. And we need to do the same. Being ready to use the word of God as our offensive weapon so when we face temptation, we can be refined and not consumed. Knowing the word of God is the key to fighting temptation. Okay, now that I've done my rally speech, listen, I want to speak to two different audiences that might be in this room right now. A little pastoral moment. First, the one to the people who are in this room and have been fighting. Listen, I know that it can feel like fighting temptation is a losing battle. Like you've set up the boundaries. You've got the accountability. You've gone to God in prayer. You have been dwelling with him on a consistent basis, but things are still difficult for you. It feels like a fire might be consuming you. Can I tell you first that I've actually been there? Like I know what it's like to do battle with lust. I know what it's like to do battle with sexual sin. I know what it's like trying to find my identity in anything under the sun and jumping from one relationship to another. I know what that's like, y'all. I have my battle wounds too. This is actually part of my testimony. For those of you who have a similar story as me, my encouragement to you is not to grow weary in doing good. See, Paul reminds us in Galatians 2 that if we do not grow weary, get this, at the proper time, in due time, in God's time, which is always right on times, come on somebody, we will reap a harvest. So don't grow weary second group of people are the people who don't know where to start. 
Here it is. Start on your knees. Would you start in surrender? Like ask God to show you, plead with him to show you where you've been giving in the temptation and where you've been believing the lies about who you are and who your true enemy is and ignoring his word. Would you ask him to just reveal that to you? And then would you pray? Pray that he will guide and pray that he will strengthen you to withstand the temptation that is coming after you. And I know as I say this, like for some of us, this can start to feel like a laundry list. Or like if you knew, you're probably thinking, hey, you're, dang, your God asked for a lot, <laughs> right? But I want us to know that the charge to fight temptation isn't something that we do to please God. It's not something that we do to earn something from him, but it is actually for our own benefit. Like, yes, he is glorified by it when we resist temptation, but it doesn't purchase anything for you. We need to know this. But this shouldn't cause us to just like back out of temptation. Hey, I'm going to do whatever I want. But no, this should actually free us up to resist. Should give us freedom to move forward in resisting temptation. It should give us the motivation to move forward in resisting temptation. Now, resisting temptation is beneficial for your relationship with Christ. And our why should hinge on three things. This is my last list coming up on stage. The why that we should resist temptation. We'll come through these quickly. Resisting temptation builds trust in God. It strengthens your faith. Now, those of us who know, who have resisted temptation and gotten a win under our belt, we know that when we resist temptation, it pushes you further and it presses you deeper into your faith. It reminds you that because of who you belong to, the things of this world, the things that might have a grip on you, they can never have a hold on you anymore. And you become strengthened and you become encouraged in your faith. Secondly, resisting temptation builds intimacy with God. Resisting affirms what you believe, and it draws you closer into a relationship with him. Thirdly, resisting temptation builds credibility with others. It validates your witness. It shows others that you actually believe what you say you believe. Now, believe it or not, Christian, what you do matters. Like you might heard it said around here before. This quote right here, what you do matters, but who you are matters more. That is so true. Like as Christians, we are character people, but we can't bypass the first half of that statement. Like what you do really does matter. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that as Christians, we are ambassadors of Christ. Meaning we represent Christ to a watching world who was wondering what Christ is actually like. And resisting temptation is part of how we show that. See, resisting temptation is for God's glory, but it is also for your good. Molly, you can make your way up. Now I'm about to close for us tonight. But before I close, I, I have a couple questions for us. And we're going to go into a moment of prayer and meditation. I want you to be thinking about this. How would your life be different if you entered temptation 
like knowing that you're going to enter into temptation. Maybe some of you come in here and you don't feel like you're being tempted at the moment. Right, just wait, live a little while longer. You will end up being tempted. And for some of you, you're, you're here and you're feeling the weight of the words that I'm saying at the moment and you're cycling through your mind. The things that have been tempting you this week even, maybe even over Thanksgiving break, these things that are ever present in your mind. How would your life be different if you enter temptation knowing that it didn't have to consume you, but it could refine you? Like how could your life be different? You don't have to be consumed by the fire that is temptation. You will not be able to bypass every element of temptation in your life, but there is something that can happen. Temptation can consume or temptation can refine. And we get to choose. How would your life be different if you enter temptation knowing that it didn't have to consume you, but it could refine you? What if you could know your identity? What if you could know your enemy? What if you could know the word in a way that could allow your trials not to destroy you, but actually build you? This is God's purposes for you. Not that you would go through life untainted by sin, not that you would go through life untainted by temptation, but that the things that happen in your life would draw you to Jesus, that you would recognize that your ability to resist temptation is only given you because of what Jesus has already done. Like those of us who believe in Jesus, we believe that the fight, the battle is already won. He has conquered everything. Sin no longer has a hold on us. Death no longer has the last say. There is nothing that this life can do to you. There is nothing. that you can be tempted by, that can harm you. The battle is already won. Jesus is inviting you into victory. The best part about fighting temptation, y'all, the best part about resisting sin is that the battle is already yours. <laughs> Amen? Jesus won it. So where you are, we're gonna go into a moment of prayer and reflection. You can just bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to give us a moment to reflect. Think about these questions. How would your life be different? If you entered temptation knowing that it didn't have to consume you, but you entered it knowing that it could refine you, how would your life be different in that way? Or what if you could know your identity and know your enemy and know the word in a way that could allow your trials to not destroy you? build you? What if you believe that Jesus was actually on your side? What if you believe that Jesus has already won? How would your life be different? Salt Company, you can walk out of here a new person. You can have trust and know that your identity is secure. You can have trust and know that you don't have to wail your hands in the air trying to fight the various enemies you think might be coming after you. 
There's only one. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is a accuser. He wants to heap condemnation on you. He is the only enemy. You can walk out of here with a new commitment to study the word. You can walk out of here with a commitment to memorize a scripture. One of the scriptures my mentor sent to me years back. As I was coming through a season of temptation, I was coming through a sin of battling or a time of battling sin. And he sent me by text message this verse from Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14, 14, I'll never forget it. It's the scene of Moses standing before the Red Sea. Right as they were leaving Egypt, he thought he was taking his people to the promised land, thought he was taking them to rescue, but the sea was standing before them. And on the backside, it was the Egyptians, Pharaoh's army coming down behind them. They felt like that they were stuck. <laughs> there was no way out. What were they going to do? In Exodus 14, 14, the spirit of the Lord comes to Moses and says, hey, all you have to do is be still. The Lord will fight your battles. This is a hope that we can hold on to. The Lord will fight for you. 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 Would you receive this tonight? Father, we love you. And we're grateful for your son. We're grateful for what he's done. We're grateful for his victory. He's the one who lived the life. He's the one who died the death. He's the one who rose from the grave. He's the one who was tempted and yet without sin. And we can have our faith in him tonight. And we can be filled with the power that is also in him, this resurrection power that we can move in light to, knowing that as he resisted, we too can resist. Would you help us believe that tonight? Would you let us know that we don't have to be consumed by the temptations that we enter into, but we can be refined by the temptations that come after us. Father, you are good and your son is mighty. We pray this in your name.